So, uh, so we are continuing in our look at True North, and today we're looking at the question of identity. And we, um, we kind of touched on this a little bit a couple weeks ago when we talked about humanity and the reality that we are made in God's image and what difference that makes in our lives. But we're going to kind of dig into that just a little bit deeper today. And so uh, we're going to do that by looking at two different texts. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at a text in Genesis chapter uh, 12, and then also at the Gospel of Matthew, and I will read both of those together. So let's listen to God's word. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took his wife Sarah and his brother's son Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. And when they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And then from the Gospel of Matthew. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, it is with joy that we come here to you this morning. We pray, God, that you would speak through your words. That if we are a people today who are weary, that you would give us rest. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So a little while back, uh, if you were here, you may recall I told a story about uh, how when I was around nine years old, um, I got lost in the middle of Tokyo. And uh, I talked about uh, the fear that kind of flooded me. In fact, if I think about it for very long, I can even remember almost viscerally some of that fear uh, uh, right now. And what I also mentioned was that what we were doing, my family and I, right before I got lost, was that we had just eaten at Wendy's. 
And I knew that when I said that, that some of you were going to lift up your little noses at the fact that these Americans were in the middle of Tokyo and decided to go and eat at Wendy's. I mean, how many wonderful places of sushi and other local uh, delicatessens could we have eaten at, right? How many of you were thinking that? Yes, I know. I know. What I didn't tell you, because I knew that you would get your nose even higher, Brian, was this. I knew that if I told you that actually not only had we eaten at Wendy's, but we hadn't just stumbled upon it. No, we had actually looked for the Wendy's for two hours. We had gotten off. We we knew what train stop it was. It had taken us about 30 or 45 minutes to actually get to the train stop where the Wendy's was. And and, and we knew that it was there, but, but we didn't know which exit. And there were four kind of exits back onto the street, if you will. And we, and we didn't know which one. And they were very far apart from one another. And we chose the wrong one. And, and this was a time when, uh, when we, of course, didn't have GPS on our phones or even mobile phones at all. And, and, and not only that, but English wasn't nearly as prevalent. And so we kept looking. And we, we didn't know. We did have a piece of paper that had the little Wendy's logo on it. But apparently the Japanese had not yet discovered the wonders of a Wendy's cheeseburger because when we showed it to them, nobody knew what we were looking at, right? And so we kept looking and we kept looking and we kept looking and we kept walking and we kept walking and we kept walking. Now the question, of course, is why did we care so much? I mean, the Wendy's cheeseburger is good, but it's not that And the reason, of course, as you may already know, is because we had been living, right, on the island of Guam. And and, and we'd been living far away from home. And even though it was a U.S. territory, it still wasn't home. It still didn't feel like America. And we loved Wendy's. We loved Wendy's. And so what happened was, whenever you're living in a foreign land, it's fine, it's great, but there's a bit of you that misses home. There's a bit of you that wants to feel like you're at home, and we had been struggling with that. And so when we discovered that there was a Wendy's in Tokyo, one of the first things we decided to do was to find that Wendy's. And I can assure you, That when we finally found that, some two hours later, miles later, when we finally found it and we walked in, I can still remember, even though I was only now nine years old, I can remember what it looked like. And even though there were clearly some differences in a Wendy's in Japan versus one in Pensacola, Florida, I can assure you that there was much that was the same. And as we ate that cheeseburger and those fries, as my sister slurped down that frosty, there was a sense that we were That who we were, our identity as Americans, had found for a brief moment in a foreign land a sense of comfort and rest. And we're, of course, not alone 
and wanting to find our home and wrestling with our identity. In fact, I would suggest that that's something that many of us, if not most of us, do. I was uh, reading an article not long ago in the New York Times that was talking about a castle, the Duart Castle. It's on the western coast of Scotland, and it's been in the, the McLean's family, the McLean clan, of course, for a long I just love Scotland's accent. And so uh, it's been there for, for, for 600 years years. And the article was about how hard it is to restore a castle. But, I mean, who of us doesn't know that to be the case, right? And so, but what was interesting to me was not all of that about the, the, the castle. What was interesting to me was to hear what Sir Lachlan said. Sir Lachlan is the, the one who really owns the home. He's the one who's taking after the home. And he was talking about the fact of how many McClins all across the globe, even it seems if they have just one drop of McLean blood, how they love to come and be a part of the castle. What he says is, he says people are increasingly searching for their heritage and their identity. In a globalized world, he said, people are becoming less sure about themselves and they want to find home. People are looking for a home. People are looking for an identity, a sense or some answer to who am I? And they are searching for it everywhere. It's one of the significant things I hope that you get whenever we talk about the story of Abram leaving. We've talked about this before, about when Abram leaves his home, Right? The scripture writers are very clear that God says, I want you to leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house. In other words, this is not just about a move. What God is saying to Abram, especially in a time where your father's home and your country would define who you were— God is saying to Abram, I am not just changing your address. I am changing who you are, how you identify yourself, how you understand how you are valued and how you are worthy. And if Abram didn't get that at first, he would get it in five more chapters when God changes his name. Or like when Jesus went and began to call Simon... Peter, or in the New Testament, whenever Saul all of a sudden becomes, there is a name change, which is not a small thing. It is a sign that when you begin a relationship with God, that everything, your very identity, who you are, why you are valued, what you are worth, all of those things become changed. And what are they changed to? Well, for Abram, of course, when God came into his life, he was saying, you are important to me, Abram, and that's why I am calling you to do this. And in the New Testament, we see in the beginning of John, of the Gospel of John, John tells us that whenever it is that we receive Christ, that we become children of God. And in Romans, Paul says that whenever you call out, Abba, Father, that that is the Spirit witnessing to the reality that you are now children of God. To what 
is our identity changed to when we become followers of Jesus, we are ones who are beloved children of God. That our identity, first and foremost, at our core, we are loved children of God. Now, if I were to stop there and were to say to you, how many of you think that you are beloved children of God, and when it comes to your identity, you say, yep, that's exactly who I am, my guess is that most of you would say yes. And yet, as I continually try and point out to us, what we are called to do as a church is not just know the right platitudes to say, smile, God loves you. I don't care about that. What I do care about is whether or not you are actually living as if that is your identity. Because I have a sneaking suspicion that for many of us, for perhaps most of us, for your pastor included, that many of us wrestle not just with knowing the right words that we're supposed to say, but actually living out what it means that, are, that we are, as a part of our identity, at the core of who we are, we are beloved children of God. Which reminded me of a clip that someone sent to me from Groundhog Day. What a classic. Let's look at that real quick. So what do you want out of life anyway? I guess I want what everybody wants, you know. Career, love, marriage, children. Are you seeing anyone? I think this is getting too personal. I don't think I'm ready to share this with you. How about you? What do you want? What I really want is someone like you. <laughs> oh, please. Well, why not? Uh, what are you looking for? Who is your perfect guy? Well, first of all, he's too humble to know he's perfect. That's me. He's intelligent, supportive, funny. Intelligent, supportive, funny. Me, me, me. He's romantic and courageous. Me also. He's got a good body, but he doesn't have to look in the mirror every two minutes. I have a great body, and sometimes I go months without looking. <sighs> He's kind, sensitive, and gentle. He's not afraid to cry in front of me. This is a man we're talking about, right? He likes animals and children, and he'll change poopy diapers. Does he have to use the word poopy? Oh, and he plays an instrument, and he loves his mother. I am really close on this one. Really, really close. Now, if you know anything about this movie, and you can probably infer it, Phil, played by Bill Murray, is nowhere close to who it is that she is describing. He is an egomaniac, completely self-centered, thinking he's got everything. And the person who she is describing is completely different than that. But my guess is perhaps he really thinks that, that that's who he is. But the reality of how he is living versus who he thinks he is are two distinct things. Seems to me that perhaps that's often the way it is, even for us as followers of Jesus, that we may know 
who God says we are, and we may know what we are supposed to say, and yet the way in which we are living is oftentimes dramatically different. Oftentimes, in fact, our lives are co-opted, our identities are co-opted, what gives us value and worth are co-opted by many different things. So what are those things? Well, as I was thinking about this, I was wondering, what do we do when we first meet somebody? When you're first trying to figure out, know who somebody is, when you want to know who are you, what do we do? Do we oftentimes just go up and say, hi, I'm Jerry. Who are you? No, right? That's awkward, kind of uncomfortable, right? So we don't do that. So what do we do? In fact, I just did this a few minutes ago when I met somebody new. What do you do for a living? Where do you live? Where are you from? Uh, Are you married? Do you have kids? Uh, All of these questions, right? All of these questions, which are fine questions in and of themselves. But do you realize that when you are asking those questions, you are, of course, trying to get to the question of who are you? And whenever it is that we begin to ask questions like that, the underlying premise is that you are what you do for a living. You are where you live or where you are from. You are whatever your marital status is. You are how many kids you may have or not have. And I wonder, do we realize how those questions begin to shape our identity? In fact, I might suggest, do we wonder how much those questions shape our souls and perhaps even exhaust our souls and distort them in some way? Because you realize that if your identity, if who you are is based on your job or your social status, or the car you drive, or the house you live in, and whether or not you're married, or whether or not you have children, or how much you are succeeding at things, or how well you're doing on a test, or what college you got into, you realize that if at the core of who you are, if those things are there, your life will go like this. There will be some moments when everything is going well and clicking and you will be up here. And there will be many other moments when you begin to go down, down, down. As long as who you are is so intricately connected to what you do, where you live, whether you're married, how they're doing at school, any of those things, your life will go up and down, up and down. It is exhausting. Which is why I have been particularly intrigued this week by the gospel of Matthew. This is a phrase, I'm sure you heard it, that I oftentimes say when we do communion. Jesus says to me, come you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Oftentimes, whenever we think about that passage, I think, I think more about just a physical rest. But it was pointed out to me this week that this is more of a question, not of physical rest, but of our souls resting. How does it make sense that Jesus' call, 
that taking the yoke of Jesus should give us rest? Because it is only, it is only when at our core we begin to take on the identity that we are loved children of God, only then that we will be at rest. Only then that we will not be tethered to how our particular day went or whether or not our boss likes us or whether or not we did better than a friend. Only when our, at our identity we know that we are loved children of God and we live into that. Only then will our souls ever be able to rest. One of the things that has been on my heart over these last couple of weeks especially is the question about how many of our younger people, especially in communities like ours, how many of their identity, how much of their identity is based on how well they are doing or not doing? on whether or not they got into this particular school or not, on whether or not they did good on that test and how they are in terms of their graduating class compared to others. How much during this time of middle school and high school when children, when their identity is being shaped and formed, when they are asking not just what do I value, but what do the people, the community, my parents, my friends, what do they value in me? What gives me worth and value? We have, as some of you know, we have a community center team. We kind of sent them out. We wanted them to look at what might a community center do? What might it look like for us to have an outpost someplace else? And, and we focus oftentimes on, on things that we do on the east side with Shepherd Community, which is wonderful. And we, we recently started a relationship uh, down with an organization around 68th or so in Michigan, which is beautiful. And my hope is we will continue with that. But one of the questions that this particular community center team has been asking is, what are the needs in places where they may not be as visible, in places like Carmel or Zionsville. You see, the thing is that tall fences, big houses, fancy vacations, and smiling family pictures do a tremendous job of disguising brokenness and pain. Do I need to say it again, or did you get that the first time? And what these team, what this team has, be, has discovered as they've talked to town officials, as they've talked to officials of the school system, what they've discovered is that a lot of our middle schoolers and our high schoolers are wrestling. They're wrestling with depression. They're wrestling with drugs. They're wrestling with alcohol. They're wrestling with just simply being exhausted physically, emotionally, and I might say even spiritually. And I don't want to oversimplify this. I know it 
is a complex issue, and yet I cannot stop asking whether or not perhaps at the core of this is that we have children who are struggling because they believe that their worth and who they are is directly connected with how well they are doing compared to others, compared to themselves, and they are driving themselves to exhaustion. They are driving themselves to to inebriate themselves, to become high, to do whatever it is, to let go some of that steam, perhaps even to get past how they're feeling about themselves because they simply are not stacking up. How many of our young people do not genuinely believe that they are loved because they are loved by God, that their worth and their identity and their purpose and their value comes first and foremost from that? And what we've been told is that oftentimes the parents And I would suggest the communities around those parents are having trouble with facing that reality. Are having trouble with actually seeing that perhaps in their child or or, or in another child and actually admitting that this might be the case. And, And I don't think they're doing it per se because they don't love their children. No question about it. That is not the reason it seems to me. I tell you why I think it is, which is that I think it's because the parents and those in the community are on the exact same treadmill as their children are. And that our, at our core, we believe that what most matters to us and how we are most given value is how we succeed and whether or not our children succeed. And at the core of our worth, whether or not we are worth, is whether we are doing better than the person next to us and whether our children are doing better than the person next to them. And the reality is that is a thirst that can never be quenched, a hunger that can never be filled, a yoke that can never be carried. And in the midst of our running to and fro and doing everything we can to make sure our children have a leg up, Jesus is saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. seems to me that what this community needs is a Wendy's in the midst of a foreign country. A place, perhaps, where amongst all of the pressures and the values and the worths that are going on around there, there is a place where people can come in order to be reminded who they are. 
I would love to be able to put on some kind of spiritual glasses so that I could come on a Sunday morning and begin to watch and be able to see as people come through our front doors and to be able to see the yoke that they are carrying full of however well they've done or not done on a test or whether or not they got that promotion or whether or not they were able to afford this or whether or not they went on this trip or that trip or however it is that they compared to others. I would love to be able to see them come in carrying that yoke. And then as the gathering spaces, they began to walk through to think about seeing a brother or sister in Christ come up on each side of them and pick the yoke up and put it down and say, you don't need that here. And to be able to walk through these doors in the midst of worship and to see Jesus begin to put his yoke upon them and to whisper into their ears, you are loved by me. Megan did this cross stitch a couple years ago. It hangs up on our wall. We, she lifted it from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It has this little phrase in it. It's right after God created Adam and Eve. And it says simply this, And they were lovely because God loved We are lovely for one reason. Because God loves us. Now in a church full of type A people, I know I need to say one thing, which is to tell you what I am not saying. I am not saying you should not try to succeed. I am not telling you, young people, to not study for your tests this week. Megan and I recently watched Chariots of Fire again. You've seen it, probably most of you. It's a classic film. But there's this great distinction between the two British Olympian runners. On the one, all running, it is his identity. It is who he is. In fact, he says, as he talks about the 100-meter run, he says, I have 10 seconds, 10 seconds to justify my existence. Then Eric Little, kid growing up as a missionary in China, probably looking for a Wendy's if he knew what was good for him. Growing up, my guess is, my hope is, a part of a loving family where he was told again and again, you are a loved child of God. He also is doing well, clearly. He's in the Olympics, and what does he say? You know this, many of you. He says, God made me for a purpose, but God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. The running, the succeeding, was not in order for him to know who he was or to know that he was valued or to know that he had worth. No, he did those things out of a celebration of who God had made him to be. 
And what we must continually be shaped here at this church is with the knowledge of the reality that we are loved by God first and foremost, no matter anything else that may be going on. And My hope and my prayer is that we might be a people who are not uncomfortable with asking that question, who are and that as we walk around, we will be living answers to that. And I have a feeling that if we can continue to grow into who that community is that God has called us to be, that people will walk maybe even for two hours in order to find a place where they are home. To find a place where they are reminded. They, that you are lovely because God loves you. Let's pray. God, we want to believe it. And yet there are so many voices Voices from our past, voices from our friends, voices from within that tell us that our identity is not found in you. So I pray, God, that you would help us. Help us to live into the reality that the reason why we are here and at the core of who we are is that we have been created and loved by you and that we are lovely because you love us it's in your name we pray amen